Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 2 Chapter 5 At the Student's Dueling Ground One day, in the interest of science, my agent obtained permission to bring me to the student's dueling place. We crossed the river and drove up the bank a few hundred yards, then turned to the left, entered a narrow alley, followed it about a hundred yards, and arrived at a two-story public house. We were acquainted with its outside aspect, for it was visible from the hotel. We went upstairs and passed into a large whitewashed apartment, which was perhaps fifty feet long by thirty feet wide and twenty or twenty-five high. It was a well-lit place. There was no carpet. Across one end and down both sides of the room extended a row of tables, and at these tables some fifty or seventy-five students were sitting. Some of them were sipping wine. Others were playing cards. Others chess. Other groups were chatting together, and many were smoking cigarettes while they waited for the coming duels. Nearly all of them wore colored caps. There were white caps, green caps, blue caps, red caps, and bright yellow ones. So all the five corps were present in strong force. In the windows at the vacant end of the room stood six or eight long, narrow-bladed swords with large protecting guards for the hand and outside was a man at work sharpening others on a grindstone. He understood his business, for when a sword left his hand, one could shave himself with it. It was observable that the young gentleman neither bowed to nor spoke with students whose caps differed in colors from their own. This did not mean hostility, but only an armed neutrality. It was considered that a person could strike harder in the duel, and with more earnest interest, if he had never been in condition of comradeship with his antagonist. Therefore, comradeship between the corps was not permitted. At intervals, the presidents of the five corps have a cold official intercourse with each other, but nothing further. For example, when the regular dueling day of one of the corps approaches, its president calls for volunteers from among the membership to offer battle. Three or more respond, but there must not be less than three. The president lays their names before the other presidents with the request that they furnish antagonists for these challengers from among their corps. This is promptly done. It chanced that the present occasion was the battle day of the Red Cap Corps. They were the challengers, and certain caps of other colors had volunteered to meet them. The students fought duels in the room which I have described two days in every week during seven and a half or eight months in every year. This custom has continued in Germany for 250 years. To return to my narrative, a student in a white cap met us and introduced us to six or eight friends of his who also wore white caps. While we stood conversing, two strange-looking figures were led in from another room. They were students panoplied for the duel. They were bareheaded, their eyes were protected by iron goggles, which projected an inch or more, the leather straps of which bound their ears flat against their heads. Their necks were wound round and round with thick wrappings, which a sword could not cut through. From chin to ankle they were padded thoroughly against injury. Their arms were bandaged and rebandaged, layer upon layer, until they looked like solid black logs. These weird apparitions had been handsome youths clad in fashionable attire fifteen minutes before, but now they did not resemble any beings one ever sees unless in nightmares. They strode along with their arms projecting straight out from their bodies. They did not hold them out themselves, but fellow students walked beside them and gave them the needed support. There was a rush for the vacant end of the room now, and we followed and got good places. The combatants were placed face to face, each with several members of his own corps about him to assist. Two seconds, well padded and with swords in their hands, took near stations. A student belonging to neither of the opposing corps placed himself in a good position to umpire the combat. Another student stood by with a watch and a memorandum book to keep record of the time and the number and nature of the wounds. A gray-haired surgeon was present with his lint, his bandages, and his instruments. 
After a moment's pause, the duelists saluted the umpire respectfully. Then, one after another, the several officials stepped forward gracefully, removed their caps, and saluted him also, and returned to their places. Everything was ready now. Students stood crowded together in the foreground, and others stood behind them on chairs and tables. Every face was turned toward the center of attraction. The combatants were watching each other with alert eyes. A perfect stillness, a breathless interest reigned. I felt that I was going to see some wary work. But not so. The instant the word was given, the two apparitions sprang forward and began to rain blows down upon each other with such lightning rapidity I could not quite tell whether I saw the swords or only the flashes they made in the air. The rattling din of these blows as they struck steel or padding was something wonderfully stirring. And they were struck with such terrific force I could not understand why the opposing sword was not beaten down under the assault. Presently, in the midst of the sword flashes, I saw a handful of hair skip into the air as if it had lain loose on the victim's head, and a breath of wind had puffed it suddenly away. The seconds cried halt, and knocked up the combatants' swords with their own. The duelist sat down. A student official stepped forward, examined the wounded head, and touched the place with a sponge once or twice. The surgeon came and turned back the hair from the wound, and revealed a crimson gash two or three inches long and proceeded to bind an oval piece of leather and a bunch of lint over it. The tally-keeper stepped up and tallied one for the opposition in his book. Then the duelist took position again. A small stream of blood was flowing down the side of the injured man's head and over his shoulder and down his body to the floor, but he did not seem to mind this. The word was given, and they plunged at each other as fiercely as before. Once more the blows rained, and rattled and flashed. Every few moments the quick-eyed seconds would notice that a sword was bent. Then they called halt, struck up the contending weapons, and an assisting student straightened the bent one. The wonderful turmoil went on. Presently a bright spark sprung from a blade, and that blade, broken in several pieces, sent one of its flying fragments to the ceiling. A new sword was provided, and the fight proceeded. The exercise was tremendous, of course, and in time the fighters began to show great fatigue. They were allowed to rest a moment, every little while, and they got other rests by wounding each other, for then they could sit down while the doctor applied the lint and bandages. The law is that the battle had to continue fifteen minutes if the men could hold out, and as the pauses didn't count, this duel was protracted to twenty or thirty minutes, I judged. At last it was decided that the men were too wearied to do battle longer. They were led away drenched with crimson from head to foot. That was a good fight, but it could not count, partly because it didn't last the lawful fifteen minutes of actual fighting, and partly because neither man was disabled by his wounds. It was a drawn battle, and the corps law required the drawn battles shall be refought as soon as the adversaries were well of their hurts. During the conflict I had talked a little, now and then, with a young gentleman of the White Cap Corps, and he had mentioned that he was to fight next, and had also pointed out his challenger, a young gentleman who was leaning against the opposite wall smoking a cigarette and restfully observing the duel then in progress. My acquaintanceship with a party of the coming contest had the effect of giving me a kind of personal interest in it. I naturally wished he might win, and it was the reverse of pleasant to learn that he probably would not, because although he was a notable swordsman, the challenger was held to be his superior. The duel presently began, and in the same furious way which had marked the previous one, I stood close by but could not tell which blows told and which did not. They fell and vanished so like flashes of light. They all seemed to tell. The swords always bent over the opponent's heads, from the forehead back over the crown, and seemed to touch all the way. But it was not so. A protecting blade, invisible to me, was always interposed between. At the end of ten seconds, each man had struck twelve or fifteen blows, and warded off twelve or fifteen, and no harm done. 
Then a sword became disabled, and a short rest followed, while a new one was brought. Early the next round, the white horse student got an ugly wound on the side of his head and gave his opponent one like it. In the third round, the latter received another bad wound to the head, and the former had his underlip divided. After that, the white horse student gave many severe wounds, but got none of consequence in return. At the end of five minutes from the beginning of the duel, the surgeon stopped it. The challenging party had suffered such injuries that any addition to them might be dangerous. These injuries were a fearful spectacle, but are better left undescribed. So against expectation, my acquaintance was the victor. Chapter 6 The third duel was brief and bloody. The surgeon stopped it when he saw that one of the men had received such wounds that he could not fight longer without endangering his life. The fourth duel was a tremendous encounter, but at the end of five or six minutes, the surgeon interfered once more. Another man so severely hurt as to render it unsafe to add to his harms. I watched this engagement as I had watched the others, with rapt interest and strong excitement, and with a shrink and a shudder for every blow that laid open a cheek or a forehead, and a conscious paling of my face when I occasionally saw a wound of a yet more shocking nature inflicted. My eyes were upon the loser of this duel when he got his last and vanquishing wound. It was in his face, and it carried away his... Well, no matter, but I must not enter into details. I had but a glance and then turned away quickly, but I would not have been looking at all if I had known what was coming. No, that is probably not true. One thinks he would not look if he knew it was coming, but the interest and excitement are so powerful that they would doubtless conquer all other feelings. And so under the fierce exhilaration of the clashing steel, he would yield and look after all. Sometimes spectators of these duels faint, and it does seem a very reasonable thing to do, too. Both parties of this fourth duel were badly hurt, so much so that the surgeon was at work upon them nearly for quite an hour, a fact which is suggestive. But this waiting interval was not wasted in idleness by the assembled students. It was past noon, therefore they ordered their landlord downstairs to send up hot beefsteaks, chickens, and such things, and these they ate sitting comfortably at several tables, while they chattered and disputed and laughed. The door to the surgeon's room stood open, meantime, but the cutting, sewing, splicing, and bandaging going on in there in plain view did not seem to disturb anyone's appetite. I went in and saw the surgeon labor a while, but could not enjoy it. It was much less trying to see the wounds given and received than to see them mended. The stir and turmoil and the music of the steel were wanting here. One's nerves were wrung by this grisly spectacle, while the duel's compensating pleasurable thrill was lacking. Finally the doctor finished, and the men who were to fight, the closing battle of the day came forth. A good many dinners were not completed yet, but no matter, they could be eaten cold after the battle. Therefore, everybody crowded forward to see. This was not a love duel, but a satisfaction affair. These two students had quarreled and were here to settle it. They did not belong to any of the corps, but they were furnished with weapons and armor and permitted to fight here by the five corps as a courtesy. Evidently, these two young men were unfamiliar with the dueling ceremonies, though they were not unfamiliar with the swords. When they were placed in position, they thought it was time to begin, and they did begin, too, with a most impetuous energy, without waiting for anybody to give the word. This vastly amused the spectators, and even broke down their studied and courtly gravity, and surprised them into laughter. Of course, the second struck up the swords and started the duel over again. At the word, the deluge of blows began, but before long the surgeon once more interfered, for the only reason which ever permits him to interfere. The day's war was over. It was now two in the afternoon, and I had been present since half-past nine in the morning. The field of battle was indeed a red one by this time, but some sawdust soon righted that. There had been one duel before I arrived, in and one of the men received many injuries, while the other escaped without a scratch. 
I had seen heads and faces of ten youths gashed in every direction by the keen two-edged blades, and yet had not seen a victim wince, nor heard a moan, nor detected any fleeting expression that confessed the sharp pain the hurts were inflicting. This was good fortitude indeed. Such endurance is to be expected in savages and prize-fighters, for they are born and educated to it. But to find it such perfection in these gently bred and kindly-natured young fellows is a matter of surprise. For it was not merely under the excitement of the sword-play that this fortitude was shown. It was shown in the surgeon's room, where an uninspiring quiet reigned, and where there was no audience. The doctor's manipulations brought out neither grimaces nor moans. And in the fights it was observable that these lads hacked and slashed with the same tremendous spirit after they were covered with streaming wounds which they had shown in the beginning. The world in general looks upon the college duels as very farcical affairs. True, but considering that the college duel is fought by boys, that the swords are real swords, and that the head and face are exposed, seems to me that it is a farce which has quite a grave side to it. People laugh at it mainly because they think the student is so covered up with armor that he cannot be hurt. But it is not so. His eyes and ears are protected, but the rest of his face and head are bare. He can not only be badly wounded, but his life is in danger, and he would sometimes lose it, but for the interference of the surgeon. It is not intended that his life shall be endangered. Fatal accidents are possible, however. For instance, the student's sword may break and the end of it fly up behind his antagonist's ear and cut an artery which could not be reached if the sword remained whole. This has happened sometimes, and death has resulted on the spot. Formerly, the student's armpits were not protected, and at that time the swords were pointed, whereas they are blunt now, so an artery in the armpit was sometimes cut, and death followed. Then, in the days of sharp-pointed swords, a spectator was an occasional victim. The end of a broken sword flew five or ten feet and buried itself in his neck or his heart, and death ensued instantly. The student duels in Germany occasion two or three deaths every year now, but this arises only from the carelessness of the wounded men. They eat or drink imprudently, or commit excesses in the way of overexertion. Inflammation sets in and gets such a headway that it cannot be arrested. Indeed, there is blood and pain and danger enough about the college duel to entitle it to a considerable degree of respect. All the customs, all the laws, all the details pertaining to the student duel are quaint and naive. The grave, precise, and courtly ceremony with which the thing is conducted invests it with a sort of antique charm. This dignity and these knightly graces suggest the tournament, not the prize fight. The laws are as curious as they are strict. For instance, the duelist may step forward from the line he is placed upon, if he chooses, but never back of it. If he steps back of it, or even leans back, it is considered he did it to avoid a blow or contrive an advantage, so he is dismissed from his core in disgrace. It would seem but natural to step from under a descending sword unconsciously and against one's will and intent. Yet this unconsciousness is not allowed. Again, if under the sudden anguish of a wound the receiver of it makes a grimace, he falls some degrees in the estimation of his fellows. His corps are ashamed of him. They call him Harefoot, which is the German equivalent of chicken-hearted. Chapter 7 In addition to the core law, there are some core usages which have the force of laws. Perhaps the president of a corps notices that one of the membership, who is no longer an exempt, that is, a freshman, has remained a sophomore some little time without volunteering to fight. Some day the president, instead of calling for volunteers, will appoint this sophomore to measure sores with a student of another corps. He is free to decline. Everybody says so. There is no compulsion. This is all true, but I have not heard of any student who did decline. He would naturally rather retire from the corps than decline. To decline and still remain in the corps would make him unpleasantly conspicuous. 
and properly so, since he knew when he joined that his main business as a member would be to fight. No, there is no law against declining, except the law of custom, which is confessedly stronger than written law, everywhere. The ten men whose duels I had witnessed did not go away when their hurts were dressed, as I had supposed they would, but came back one after another, as soon as they were free of the surgeon, and mingled with the assemblage in the dueling room. The Whitecap student who won the second fight witnessed the remaining three, and talked with us during the intermissions. He could not talk very well, because his opponent's sword had cut his upper lip in two, and then the surgeon had sewn it together, and overlaid it with a profusion of white plaster patches. Neither could he eat easily, since he contrived to accomplish a slow and troublesome luncheon while the last duel was preparing. The man who was the worst hurt of all played chess while waiting to see this engagement. A good part of his face was covered with patches and bandages, and all the rest of his head was covered and concealed by them. It is said that the student likes to appear on the street and in other public places in this kind of array, and that his predilection often keeps him out when exposed to rain or sun is a positive danger for him. Newly bandaged students are a very common spectacle in the public garden of Heidelberg. It is also said that the student is glad to get wounds in the face because the scars they leave show so well there. It is also said that these face wounds are so prized that youths have even been known to pull them apart from time to time and put red wine in them to make them heal badly and leave as ugly a scar as possible. It does not look reasonable, but it is roundly asserted and maintained nevertheless. I am sure of one thing. Scars are plenty enough in Germany among the young men, and very grim ones they are too. They crisscross the face in angry red welts and are permanent and ineffaceable. Some of these scars are of a very strange and dreadful aspect, and the effect is striking when several such accept the milder ones which form a city map on a man's face. They suggest the burn district, then. We had often noticed that many of the students wore a colored silk band or ribbon diagonally across their breasts, and transpired that this signifies that the wearer has fought three duels in which a decision was reached, duels in which he either whipped or was whipped, for drawn battles do not count. After a student has received his ribbon, he is free. He can cease from fighting without reproach, except if someone insults him. His president cannot appoint him to fight. He can volunteer if he wants to, or remain quiescent if he prefers to do so. Statistics show he does not prefer to remain quiescent. They show that the duel has a singular fascination about it somewhere, for these free men, so far from resting upon the privilege of the badge, and are always volunteering. A corps student told me it was a record that Prince Bismarck fought 32 of these duels in a single summer term when he was in college, so he fought 29 after his badge had given him the right to retire from the field. The statistics may be found to possess interest in several particulars. Two days in every week are devoted to dueling. The rule is rigid that there must be three duels on each of these days there are generally more, but there cannot be fewer. There were six the day I was present. Sometimes there are seven or eight. It is insisted that eight duels a week, four for each of the two days, is too low an average to draw a calculation from. But I will reckon that from that basis, preferring an understatement to an overstatement of the case, this requires about 480 or 500 duelists in a year. For in summer, the college term is about three and a half months, and in winter, it is four months and sometimes longer. Of the 750 students in the university at time I am writing, only 80 belong to the five corps, and it is only these corps that do the dueling. Occasionally, other students borrow the arms and battleground of the five corps in order to settle a quarrel, but this does not happen every dueling day. Consequently, ADUs furnish the materials for some 250 duels a year. This average gives six fights a year to each of the 80, 
this large work could not be accomplished if the badge holders stood upon their privilege and ceased to volunteer. Of course, where there is so much fighting, the students make it a point to keep themselves in constant practice with the foil. One often sees them at the tables in the castle grounds, using their whips or canes to illustrate some new sword trick which they may have heard about. And between the duels, on the day whose history I have been writing, the swords were not idle. Every now and then we heard a succession of the keen hissing sounds which the sword makes when it is being put through its paces in the air, and this informed us that a student was practicing. Necessarily, this unceasing attention to the art develops an expert occasionally. Not only does he become famous in his own university, his renown spreads to other universities. He is invited to Göttingen to fight with a Göttingen expert. If he is victorious, he will be invited to other colleges, or those colleges will send their experts to him. Americans and Englishmen often join one or another of the five corps. A year or two ago, the principal Heidelberg expert was a big Kentuckian. He was invited to the various universities and left a wake of victory behind him all about Germany. But at last, a little student in Strasbourg defeated him. There was formerly a student in Heidelberg who had picked up somewhere and mastered a peculiar trick of cutting up under instead of cleaving down from above. While the trick lasted, he won in sixteen successive duels in his own university. But by that time, observers had discovered what his charm was and how to break it. Therefore, his championship ceased. The rule which forbids social intercourse between members of different corps is strict. In the dueling house, in the parks, on the street, and anywhere and everywhere the students go, caps of a color group among themselves together. If all the tables in a public garden were crowded but one, and that one had two red-cap students at it, and ten vacant places, the yellow caps, the blue caps, the white caps, and the green caps seeking seats would go by that table and not seem to see it, nor seem to be aware that there was such a table in the grounds. The student by whose courtesy we had been enabled to visit the dueling place wore the white cap, the Prussian Corps. He introduced us to many white caps, but to none of another color. The corps etiquette extended even to us, who were strangers, and required us to group with the white corps only, and speak only with the white corps while we were their guests, and to keep aloof from caps of other colors. Once I wished to examine some of the swords, but an American student said, It would not be quite polite. These now in the windows all have red hilts or blue. They will bring in some with white hilts presently and those you can handle freely. When a sword was broken in the first duel, I wanted a piece of it, but its hilt was the wrong color, so it was considered best and politest to await a proper season. It was brought to me after the room was cleared, and I will now make a life-size sketch of it by drawing a line around it with my pen to show the width of the weapon. The length of these swords is about three feet. They are quite heavy. One's disposition to cheer during the course of the duels or at their close was naturally strong, but core etiquette forbade any demonstrations of this sort. However brilliant a contest or victory might be, no sign or sound betrayed that anyone was moved. A dignified gravity and repression were maintained at all times. When the dueling was finished and we were ready to go, the gentlemen of the Prussian corps to whom we had been introduced took off their caps in the courteous German way, and also shook hands. Their brethren of the same order took off their caps and bowed, but without shaking hands. The gentlemen of the other corps treated us just as they would have treated white caps. They fell apart, apparently unconscious, and left us an unobstructed pathway, but did not seem to see us or know we were there. If we had gone thither the following week as guests of another corps, the white caps, without meaning any offense, would have observed the etiquette of their order and ignored our presence. Chapter 8 The Great French Duel Much as the modern French duel is ridiculed by certain smart people, it is in reality one of the most dangerous institutions of our day. Since it is always fought in the open air, the combatants are nearly sure to catch cold. Monsieur Paul de Cousignac, 
the most inveterate of the French duelists, has suffered so often in this way that he is at last a confirmed invalid, and the best physician in Paris has expressed the opinion that if he goes on dueling for fifteen or twenty years more, unless he forms the habit of fighting in a comfortable room where damps and drafts cannot intrude, he will eventually endanger his life. This ought to moderate the talk of those people who are so stubborn in maintaining that the French duel is the most health-giving of recreations because of the open-air exercise it affords. And it ought also to moderate that foolish talk about French duelists and the socialist-hated monarchs being the only people who are immortal. But it is time to get to my subject. Soon as I heard of the late fiery outbreak between Monsieur Gambetta and Monsieur Forteau in the French Assembly, I knew that trouble must follow. I knew it because a long personal friendship with Monsieur Gambetta had revealed to me the desperate and implacable nature of the man. Vast as are his physical proportions, I knew that the thirst for revenge would penetrate to the most remotest frontiers of his person. I did not wait for him to call on me, but went at once to him. As I expected, I found the brave fellow steeped in a profound French calm. I say French calm because French calmness and English calmness have points of difference. He was moving swiftly back and forth among the debris of his furniture, now and then staving chance fragments of it across the room with his foot, grinding a constant grist of curses through his set teeth, and halting every little while to deposit another handful of his hair on the pile which he had been building of it on the table. He threw his arms around my neck, bent me over his stomach to his breast, kissed me on both cheeks, hugged me four or five times, and then placed me in his own armchair. As soon as I got well again, we began business at once. I said, I suppose he would wish me to act as his second, and he said, of course, and I said I must be allowed to act under a French name, so that I might be shielded from obloquy in my country in case of fatal results. He winced here, probably at the suggestion that dueling was not regarded with respect in America. However, he agreed to my requirement. This accounts for the fact that in all the newspaper reports, Monsieur Gambetta's second was apparently a Frenchman. First, we drew up my principal's will. I insisted upon this, and stuck to my point. I said I had never heard of a man in his right mind going out to fight a duel without first making his will. He said he had never heard of a man in his right mind doing anything of the kind. When he had finished the will, he wished to proceed to a choice of his last words. He wanted to know how the following words, as a dying exclamation, struck me. I die for my God, for my country, for freedom of speech, for progress, and the universal brotherhood of man. I objected that this would require too lingering a death. It was a good speech for a consumptive, but not suited to the exigencies of the field of honor. We wrangled over a good many anti-mortem outbursts, but I finally got him to cut his obituary down to this, which he copied into his memorandum book, purposing to get it by heart. I die that France may live. I said that this remark seemed to lack relevancy, but he said relevancy was a matter of no consequence in last words. What you wanted was a thrill. Next thing in order was the choice of weapons. My principal said he was not feeling well and would leave that and the other details of the proposed meeting to me. Therefore, I wrote the following note and carried it to Monsieur Forteau's friend. Sir, Mr. Gambetta accepts Monsieur Forteau's challenge and authorizes me to propose Plessis Piquot as the place of meeting, tomorrow morning at daybreak as the time, and axes as the weapons. I am, sir, with great respect, Mark Twain. Monsieur Forteau's friend read this note and shuddered. Then he turned to me and said, with a suggestion of severity in his tone, Have you considered, sir, what would be the inevitable result of such a meeting as this? Well, for instance, what would it be? Bloodshed. Well, that's about the size of it, I said. Now, if it is a fair question, what was your side proposing to shed? 
I had him there. He saw he had made a blunder, so he hastened to explain it away. He said he had spoken jestingly. Then he added that he and his principal would enjoy axes, and indeed prefer them. But such weapons were barred by the French code, and so I must change my proposal. I walked the floor, turning the thing over in my mind, and finally it occurred to me that Gatling guns at fifteen paces would be a likely way to get a verdict on the field of honor. So I framed this idea into a proposition. But again it was not accepted. The code was in the way. I proposed rifles, then double-barreled shotguns, then Colt's Navy revolvers. These being all rejected, I reflected a while and sarcastically suggested brick bats at three-quarters of a mile. I always hate to fool away a humorous thing on a person who has no perception of humor, and it filled me with bitterness when this man went soberly away to submit the last proposition to his principal. He came back presently and said his principal was charmed with the idea of brick bats at three-quarters of a mile, but must decline on account of the danger to disinterested parties passing between. Then I said, Well, I am at the end of my string now. Perhaps you would be good enough to suggest a weapon. Perhaps you've even had one in mind all this time. His countenance brightened, and he said with alacrity, Oh, without doubt, monsieur. So he fell to hunting in his pockets, pocket after pocket, and he had plenty of them, muttering all the while, Now what could I have done with them? At last he was successful. He fished out of his vest pocket a couple of little things which I carried to the light and ascertained to be pistols. They were single-barreled and silver-mounted and very dainty and pretty. I was not able to speak for emotion. I silently hung one of them on my watch chain and returned the other. My companion in crime now unrolled a postage stamp containing several cartridges and gave one of them to me. I asked if he meant to signify by this that our men were to be allowed but one shot apiece. He replied that the French code permitted no more. I then begged him to go on and suggest a distance, for my mind was growing weak and confused under the strain upon which it had been put. He named sixty-five yards. I nearly lost my patience. I said, Sixty-five yards? With these instruments? Squirt guns would be deadlier at fifty. Consider, my friend, you and I are banded together to destroy life, not make it eternal. But with all my persuasions, all my arguments, I was only able to get him to reduce the distance to thirty-five yards, and even this concession he made with reluctance, and said with a sigh, I wash my hands of the slaughter. It is on your head. There was nothing for me but to go home to my old lion heart and tell my humiliating story. When I entered, Monsieur Gambetta was laying his last lock of hair upon the altar. He sprang toward me, exclaiming, You have made fatal arrangements. I see it in your eyes. I have, I replied. His face paled a trifle and leaned upon the table for support. He breathed thick and heavily for a moment or two, so tumultuous were his feelings. Then he hoarsely whispered, the weapon, the weapon, quick, what is the weapon? This, when I displayed the silver-mounted thing, he cast one glance at it and then swooped ponderously to the floor. When he came to, he said mournfully, The unnatural calm to which I have subjected myself has toiled upon my nerves, but aware with weakness I will confront my fate like a man and a Frenchman. He rose to his feet and assumed an attitude which, for sublimity, has never been approached by man, and has seldom been surpassed by statues. Then he said, in deep bass tones, Behold, I am calm, I am ready. Reveal to me the distance. Thirty-five yards. I could not lift him up, of course, but I rolled him over and poured water down his back. He presently came to and said, Thirty-five years? Without a rest? But why ask? Since murder was that man's intention, why should he pelter with small details? But mark you one thing. In my fall, the world shall see how the chivalry of France meets death. After a long moment, he asked, 
Was nothing said about that man's family standing up with him, as an offset to my bulk? But no matter, I would not stoop to make such a suggestion. If he is not noble enough to suggest it himself, he is welcome to this advantage which no honorable man would take. He now sank into a sort of stupor of reflection which lasted some minutes, after which he broke silence with, The hour, what is the hour fixed for the collision? Down tomorrow. He seemed greatly surprised and immediately said, Insanity! I have never heard of such a thing! No one is abroad at such an hour! Well, that's the reason I named it. Do you mean to say you want an audience? It is no time to bandy words. I am astonished that Monsieur Foutou should ever have agreed to so strange an innovation. Go at once. Require a little hour. I ran down the stairs, threw open the front door, and almost plunged into the arms of Monsieur Forteau's second. He said, I have the honor to say that my principal strenuously objects to the hour chosen, and begs you will consent to change it to half-past nine. Any courtesy, sir, which it is in our power to extend at the service of your excellent principal, we agree to the proposed change of time. I beg you to accept the thanks of my client. Then he turned to a person behind him and said, You hear, Monsieur Noir? The hour is altered to half-past nine. Whereupon Monsieur Noir bowed and expressed his thanks and went away. My accomplice continued, If it is agreeable to you, your chief surgeons and ours shall proceed to the field in the same carriage as is customary. It's entirely agreeable to me, and I'm obliged to you for mentioning the surgeons, for I'm afraid I should not have thought of them. How many shall I want? I suppose two or three will be enough. Two is the customary number for each party. I, I refer to chief surgeons, but considering the exalted positions occupied by our clients, it would be well and decorous that each of us appoints several consulting surgeons each from among the highest in the profession. These will come in their own private carriages. Have you engaged a hearse? Well, bless my stupidity. I never thought of that. I will attend to it right away. I must seem very ignorant to you, but you must try to overlook that, because I have never had any experience of such a swell duel as this before. I have a good deal to do with duels in the Pacific Coast, but I see now that they were crude affairs. A hearse? Well, we used to leave the elected lying around loose and let anybody cord them up and cart them off if they wanted to. Have you anything further to suggest? Nothing except that the head undertakers shall ride together as usual. The subordinates and mutes will go on foot, also as usual. I will see you at eight o'clock in the morning, and we will arrange the order of the procession. I have the honor to bid you a good day. I returned to my client, who said, Very well. At what hour is the engagement to begin? Half past nine. Very good indeed. Have you sent the fact to the newspapers? Sir, if after our long and intimate friendship you can for a moment deem me capable of such base treachery. Tut, tut. What wills are these, my dear friend? Have I wounded you? Ah, forgive me. I'm overloading you with labor. Therefore, go on with the other details and drop this one from your list. The bloody-minded photo will be sure to attend to it. Or am myself? Yes, yes, to make certain. I will drop a note to my journalistic friend, Monsieur Noir. Well, come to think of it, you may save yourself the trouble. That other second has informed Monsieur Noir. Ha! Huh. I might have known it. It is just like Forteau, who always wants to make a display. At half-past nine in the morning, the procession approached the field of Plessis Piquet in the following order. First came our carriage, nobody in it but Monsieur Gambetta and myself. Then a carriage containing Monsieur Fortot and his second. Then a carriage containing two poet orders who did not believe in God, and these had manuscript funeral orations projecting from their breast pockets. Then a carriage containing the head surgeons and their cases of instruments. Then eight private carriages containing consulting surgeons. Then a hack containing a coroner. 
then the two hearses, then a carriage containing the head undertakers, then a train of assistants and mutes on foot, and after these came plodding through the fog a long procession of camp followers, police and citizens generally. It was a noble turnout and would have made a fine display if we had had thinner weather. There was no conversation. I spoke several times to my principal, but I judge he was not aware of it, for he always referred to his notebook and muttered absently, I die that France may leave. I die that France may leave. Finally arriving on the field, my fellow second and I paced off the 35 yards and then drew lots for choice of position. This latter was but an ornamental ceremony, for all choices were alike in such weather. These preliminaries being ended, I went to my principal and asked him if he was ready. He spread himself out to his full width and said in a stern voice, Ready, let the batteries be charged. The loading was done in the presence of duly constituted witnesses. We considered it best to perform this delicate service with the assistance of a lantern on account of the state of the weather. We now placed our men. At this point, the police noticed that the public had massed themselves together on the right and left of the field. They therefore begged a delay while they should put these poor people in a place of safety. The request was granted. The police having ordered two multitudes to take position behind the duelists, we were once more ready. The weather growing more opaque, it was agreed between myself and the other second that before giving the fatal signal, we should each deliver a loud whoop to enable the combatants to ascertain each other's whereabouts. I now returned to my principal and was distressed to observe that he had lost a good deal of his spirit. I tried my best to hearten him. I said, Indeed, sir, things are not as bad as they seem. Considering the character of the weapons, the limited number of shots allowed, the generous distance, the impenetrability of the fog, and added the fact that one of the combatants is one-eyed and the other cross-eyed and near-sighted, seems to me that this conflict need not necessarily be fatal. There are chances that both of you may survive. Therefore, cheer up. Do not be downhearted. This speech had so good an effect that my principal immediately stretched forth his hand and said, I am myself again. Give me the weapon. I laid it all lonely and forlorn in the center of the vast solitude of his palm. He gazed at it and shuddered, and still mournfully contemplating it, he murmured in a broken voice, Alas, it is not death I dread, but mutilation. I heartened him once more with such success that he said presently, Let the tragedy begin. Stand at my back. Do not desert me in this solemn hour, my friend. I gave him my promise. I now assisted him to point his pistol toward the spot where I judged his adversary to be standing, and cautioned him to listen well, and further guide himself by my fellow second's whoop. I then propped myself against Monsieur Gambetta's back and raised a rousing whoopee. This was answered from out the far distances of the fog, and I immediately shouted, One, two, three, fire! Two little sounds like spit, spit broke upon my ear, and in the same instance I was crushed to the earth under a mountain of flesh. Bruised as I was, I was still able to catch a faint accent from above and to this effect. I died for... for... Perdition, take it. What is it I died for? Oh, yes, France. I died. France, believe. The surgeons swarmed around with their probes in their hands and applied their microscopes to the whole area of Monsieur Gambetta's person, with the happy result of finding nothing in the nature of a wound. Then a scene ensued which, in every way, gratifying and inspiriting. The two gladiators fell upon each other's necks with floods of proud and happy tears. That other second embraced me, the surgeons, the orders, the undertakers, the police. Everybody embraced, everybody congratulated, everybody cried, and the whole atmosphere was filled with praise and with joy unspeakable. Seemed to me that I would rather be a hero of a French duel than a crowned and sceptered monarch. When the commotion had somewhat subsided, the body of the surgeons held a consultation, 
and after a good deal of debate, decided that with proper care and nursing, there was reason to believe that I would survive my injuries. My internal hurts were deemed the most serious, since it was apparent that a broken rib had penetrated my left lung, and that many of my organs had been pressed out so far to one side or the other where they belonged, that it was doubtful that they would ever learn to perform their functions in such remote and unaccustomed localities. They then set my left arm in two places, pulled my right hip into its socket again, and re-elevated my nose. I was an object of great interest and even admiration, and many sincere and warm-hearted persons had themselves introduced to me and said they were proud to know the only man who had been hurt in a French duel in 40 years. I was placed in an ambulance at the very head of the procession, and thus, with gratifying eclat, I was marched into Paris, the most conspicuous figure in that great spectacle, and deposited at the hospital. The cross of the Legion of Honor has been conferred upon me. However, few escape that distinction. Such is the true version of the most memorable private conflict of the age. I have no complaints to make against anyone. I acted for myself, and I can stand the consequences. Without boasting, I think I may say I am not afraid to stand before a modern French duelist. But as long as I keep my right mind, I will never consent to stand behind one again. <laughs>